you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 3, to the epistle of 1 Peter, and pardon me, chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 3, 1 Peter, chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we began a series in 1 Peter, and we come this morning to verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12, but I want to read those verses in context, so let's begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And now the verses we'll be considering this morning. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me just ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, we pray that your word would rule our hearts, that your spirit would be our teacher, we pray that your greater glory would be our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. In the context of a worship service, when the people of God are gathered and the Son of God is present through the promised Holy Spirit, and the Word of God is faithfully preached, God is often pleased to bring about amazing and even astounding things in the hearts and lives of the people who hear the Word preached. Some immediately, and for others the fruit is born later on. We know, of course, that if there is any fruit that is born from the preaching event, it is entirely the work of God's Spirit. But when God brings special blessing through preaching, there are invariably two things, humanly speaking, that need to come together. In the first place, you need to have a man called of God who is seriously engaging with the text of Scripture and has the God-given ability to expound the text and apply it with effect. You need a man who has studied the Scriptures, seriously prepared to speak, as 1 Peter 4 tells us, the oracles of God. But then secondly, and just as importantly, 
you must have an expectant congregation. And that congregation's first concern must not be to hunt eagerly for some little gem or special blessing in the sermon to take into the upcoming week, or simply to tune in for the relevant bits that are directly and immediately applicable to my own day-to-day life. Now, the congregation must come primarily with an all-absorbing desire to grow in the knowledge of God and His Word. And this posture informs what is expected of the preaching. The preaching meets these expectations by helping the congregation grow in the knowledge of God by turning to the next text and making the Word of God the subject for preaching, the food with which the sheep are to be fed. Now, this means that though many sermons certainly will contain important points of application that do inform our day-to-day lives, some sermons will be designed simply to help people understand and love their Bibles. We we shouldn't be always so eager uh, to jump from the content of the preaching to, okay, what immediately will this do for my Tuesday morning? Some sermons are simply designed to help people love their Bibles. One of the reasons Christianity in our day is so shallow and so impotent is because too often Christians don't take the time to think deeply about God and His Word. They are often too preoccupied with relevant stories, with pleasant illustrations, and with always practical seven-step programs for how to make it through the next week. What we need is deeper preaching of the Bible, which aims at cultivating a depth of relationship with and a love to God and His Word. And of course, in the long run, nothing could be more practical than to have a people that are actually shaped by the Scriptures and have this all-absorbing desire to grow in their knowledge of God, who He is, and what His Word tells us. This sermon, which is an exposition of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, is not designed primarily to give to you a to-do list for how to have a better week this week than you had last week. It is designed to deepen your love of God and to enrich your understanding of His Word and to magnify His grace. And if these aims are accomplished, we will have experienced something of the true purpose and nature of preaching. If you leave today saying, I understand something more of my Bible as a result of hearing that sermon, and more than that, I love my Bible and I love the God of the Bible more as a result of hearing that sermon, then this message will have been a success. Let me ask that we read again 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And then I'll attempt to expound this passage this morning. After telling us of this great salvation that we have, the new birth to the living hope through the resurrection of Christ, Peter says, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Four main headings. The first is this. Consider with me the identity of the prophets. 
The prophets are mentioned in these verses. Let's consider the identity of the prophets. Who were these prophets? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied. Peter is referring here to the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, This would certainly include prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It would include the minor prophets, but it would also include the psalmists. Uh, It would include David, who was said to be a prophet, Moses also, who was said to be a prophet. All of these are included among the prophets, and they prophesied concerning things to come. Peter and his readers would have been very familiar with the Old Testament prophets and the things about which they spoke. And now here you are, Peter, writing to a group of New Covenant saints, writing to churches all across Asia Minor. Of course, they don't have the written, well, most of them would not have had the written record of the New Testament. Perhaps they had gotten hold of of, of letters that had been passed around and different gospel accounts, but typically the Scriptures were the Old Testament. So you have the Old Testament, and, and, and Peter has been talking about this living hope, this great salvation that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and now he wants to tell them, what does this salvation have to do with the Old Testament prophets? In in what way is Isaiah and David and Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, in what way are these prophets connected to this salvation? Having expounded something of the nature of Christian salvation, Peter is now calling the Old Testament prophets to bear witness. He wants to help these New Covenant saints understand their Old Testaments and to understand how their Old Testaments relate now to the things that have taken place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the identity of the prophets. It's the prophets of the Old Testament. Consider with me, secondly, the curiosity of the prophets. The curiosity of the prophets. We read that the prophets who prophesied, verse 10, about the grace of God that was to be yours, searched and inquired, carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The curiosity of the prophets. By by this heading, I don't mean um, that the prophets were odd or peculiar. You know, if I say, well, well, that guy's rather curious, I might mean he's, he's kind of an odd guy a peculiar guy. That's not the way I'm using the word. I mean curiosity in the sense of inquisitiveness. Now, even then, I I don't have in mind the sort of um, haphazard, light-hearted curiosity of like a curious George. You kids know curious George, the monkey? He's just very curious. Um, I, I don't even mean the sort of innocent, playful curiosity of a small child who might be curious about the different varieties of bugs or something like that. What I mean by my use of the word curiosity is the sort of serious curiosity that drives someone to eagerly investigate an issue, to learn the facts concerning an important matter. And this was indeed the posture of the prophets toward the things about which they prophesied. Now think about this. Marvelous things have been revealed to the prophets. I mean, imagine being Isaiah, being told all the glorious things Isaiah was told about the coming of the Messiah and what the the, the new messianic age would be like. Marvelous things were told to the prophets, deep things, mysterious things. And what we learn here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, is that even they, the prophets, didn't fully comprehend the meaning of the things they were saying. 
They didn't exactly understand. Even as they're being told what to say, even as they're prophesying, exactly how to interpret and understand and put together the things that they were conveying to God's people, they themselves didn't entirely comprehend. And in some sense, we're to learn from these verses that they were aware of their lack of comprehension. They were aware of the lack of clarity with which they saw these things, and they wanted to eradicate it. They wanted to have greater clarity. They wanted to know when exactly the Christ would come. What circumstances would herald His coming? And and when He came, what would His coming be like? And Peter says they searched and inquired carefully into these things. Now, I imagine a lot of that happened outside of the written record we have in the Old Testament. But even within the Old Testament, we have examples of prophets trying to understand and piece together in greater depth what it is that's being revealed to them. So, so one such example among many is Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. The prophet Daniel, of course, received this vision of the Son of Man coming on a cloud with dominion and truth and righteousness. He says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. These prophets, these men of God, were called of God to speak, but how precisely to interpret what they spoke was not always altogether clear to them or to those to whom they spoke. So you must know this. As Bible people who love the Old Testament, you come to your sacred text, you come to the Old Testament, you must know that when you read the prophets, they did not entirely understand how this was all going to work itself out. They knew it was wonderful. They knew that God was faithful. They knew that, they knew that God was going to accomplish salvation and deliverance for His people. But precisely how these events would take place, there was something of a veil there. They did not have perfect clarity on the issues about which they prophesied. We should just appreciate that this is something of the nature of how the Bible works. The biblical revelation came according to a certain chronology. It was unfolded in various stages, and the Bible itself seems to be self-consciously aware of this, that there is greater clarity in the new than there is in the old. There were promises made, there were things that were foretold, that were seen and believed somewhat dimly, but then opened up and made clear in an amazing and striking new way through the events of the gospel. This means, practically speaking, if you could go back, if you could go back in a time machine and interview Moses or David uh, or Isaiah, I'm not talking about bringing them here to the present, you go back in time and you interview Moses or David or Isaiah, you would detect, I think, all kinds of fuzzy notions about the coming of the Messiah and what that was to be like. You as a New Covenant Christian who now have the completed revelation of God's Word, you would actually be in the position to be their teacher. And, 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 and it would be very likely that, that you'd say to Moses, no, 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 actually it's not going to work out entirely like that. Brother, you're missing the forest for the trees. David, you're missing the trees for the forest. Isaiah, no, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not exactly how it's going to work out. Let me, let me help you understand precisely how this is going to go. There would have been things these Old Testament prophets would not have totally appreciated and understood. They didn't have the same clarity that we have this side of the cross. 
This is an important principle to keep in mind as Bible readers when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament. We should not assign perfect clarity to the Old Testament saints with respect to their understanding of the prophecies they spoke. There's something of a veil there. They did not have the sort of clarity we have this side of the cross. And we should recognize also that the New Testament, specifically the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus, are the interpretive key for how to understand the Old Testament. It is the historic events of the gospel that caused the Old Testament revelation to come alive with meaning. It is simply true in our day you cannot adequately understand the Old Testament without Jesus, without the New Testament. We do not read the Old Testament as Orthodox Jews. We read the New Testament as Christians who know the Lord Jesus Christ and know something of His gospel and understand now how all these things were to be worked out in redemptive history. We see the Old Testament through a new lens, namely the new lens of the events of the New Testament Scriptures. I used this analogy several weeks ago. Um, it might help some of you. If you haven't seen Star Wars, you could still probably pick up what I'm trying to get across here. But if you know the Star Wars story, you know of Anakin Skywalker, okay? Spoiler alert, he's Darth Vader also, okay, in later films. And Anakin Skywalker, it was prophesied of Anakin Skywalker, he'd be the chosen one, he would what? He would bring balance to the force, right? And if you've seen those films or read those books, you, you might know the scene I'm talking about where a little boy, Anakin Skywalker, is appearing before the, the Jedi Council, and here's all the Jedi, and they're all debating over his future and who he is and how this is all supposed to work itself out. They sense that he is the one, but then again, his, his midi-chlorian count is too high. I know this is getting really nerdy, okay? And, but they're all debating. Well, you can think of those Jedi as like the prophets, right? How's this all gonna work itself out? We're seeing something here, but, but we don't understand or appreciate entirely how these events are going to work themselves out. But of course, those of us who have had the privilege of a full revelation, of the Star Wars films and books, we know precisely how it is. In the most unanticipated of ways, this young boy brought balance to the force later on. Well, similarly, the prophets knew the Messiah was going to come. They knew certain things about him, but there were all sorts of things they just didn't appreciate. There were things they couldn't exactly piece together or understand in terms of how this was going to look. And Peter's telling us they were to some degree aware of this. They inquired carefully. They studied. They wanted to know, when is the Christ going to come? And, and what is His coming going to be like? And how are all these events going to fit together in the coming of the Messiah? But of course, they did not have answers to all their questions. Their curiosity in their day was not satisfied. And one of the reasons in our text, Peter, I think, is telling this to these Christians is to tell them they have been given something in the gospel in terms of the full picture that was denied to those Old Testament prophets. They were not permitted at that time in redemptive history to know the outcome of all these things. I'm not saying they weren't saved. They were saved by faith just like we are, but they didn't have the privilege that we have of knowing the outcome and knowing how all of this was to work out. And one of the things Peter wants to do with the saints in Asia Minor is to, to, to enlarge their sense of privilege. 
you have sight of something. You can see with greater clarity than even Moses, than even David. You are in a place of unusual privilege. The things that they did not see, that it was denied to them to see and understand, now in these days through the preaching of the gospel, you have been permitted to see and know and appreciate. That's the curiosity of the prophets, the identity of the prophets, the curiosity of the prophets. Consider with me thirdly the content of their prophecy, the content of their prophecy. First Peter 10, we read, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, and I believe that's the Holy Spirit, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Prophets prophesied about all kinds of things, but this is what Peter focuses on in terms of the content of their prophecy, the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories, the glories that were to accompany the coming of the Christ and to come after the coming of the Christ. This is an important theme in the New Testament to to show Christians how it is that the Old Testament anticipated the sufferings of the Christ. So so Jesus says to His disciples after His resurrection in Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This was a regular theme in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. One example we find in Acts 26, there the apostle Paul says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim both to our people, or He would be proclaimed to both our people and to the Gentiles. So, so Christ and His apostles sought to show from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Christ was indeed to suffer. Now, where would they have gone to do this? There are actually a number of passages. There are examples in the Psalms, for example. Psalm 16, which anticipates the death of the Messiah. Psalm 22, for example. Psalm 22, we have statements such as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him if He delights in Him. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know all of these words are repeated at one point or another in the gospels. But of course, the most well-known passage that foretold the sufferings of the Christ is found in Isaiah 53. You could turn there if you'd like, or you could just listen to me read these verses. But in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is speaking of the suffering servant of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah who would suffer in the place of sinners some 600 or 700 years before the events of Jesus' death. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, we read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What a remarkable passage. Can, can I just preach the gospel for a minute? This is at the heart of the gospel, that, that our sins are laid on Jesus as the Lamb of God, the, the, the sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. And God is pleased through His Son, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the Messiah, to make atonement for our sins. The, the, the picture is like what it would have been uh, under the old covenant ceremonial law that, that, that the priest would put his hands on the head of the lamb. And what was being pictured there is that there's this transfer of sin from not just the priest, but from the entire nation onto the head of the lamb, and then the lamb was to be slaughtered. That's something of the picture here instead of what Jesus does for us. Do you know yourself and feel yourself to be a sinner? All the things that make you ashamed, all the things that you have done in rebellion against God, and to think there can be a transfer that takes place. God is pleased to take my sins and to put them on the head of Jesus and then to sacrifice Him in my place. All my iniquities, all my transgressions, all of my sins transferred to Jesus so that I can be forgiven. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And for everyone here who embraces that message, repents of sin, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what He'll do for you. But we can see here, to get back to 1 Peter 1, part of the content of Old Testament prophecy is that the Christ would suffer and that He would die. And though the prophets themselves and those who received their prophecy did not properly understand this, nonetheless, this was part of the content of their prophecy, which we understand now in hindsight. I don't think if we were in the place of those Old Testament saints, and we had this revelation, we would have put it all together ourselves. It's only something we can see this side of the coming of the Lord Jesus and all that He did in His death and resurrection. But if, if these passages I just mentioned are telling us of the sufferings of the Christ, what are the subsequent glories? That's the other part of the content of their prophecies. To what is Peter referring? Now, this is probably a catch-all phrase for the many glorious things that it was predicted would accompany the coming of the Messiah. The prophets, many of them told of an age in which the Messiah would come, and He would bring salvation to His people. And in this age, the Gentiles would be brought in, and the blessing would come to the nations when the Christ would rule and reign over His people in perfect peace and justice throughout all eternity. It's amazing. David, think about David. He's the king of this small nation. No one else in the world worships Yahweh. David, if you read the Psalms, has this confidence, this trust, this faith that one day all the nations are going to be gathered in, that God is going to have a people from among nations. They're going to, they're going to come and they're going to worship God. Think about what faith that would take. It's the kind of faith only God could give someone. It would be like, it would be as if Winston-Salem was the only place in the world that had any sort of gospel witness, and us expressing our confidence that the whole world's going to hear about the gospel. And that's the sort of faith Abraham had, David had, 
the Old Testament prophets had. This was not a likely story, the way this all worked out. They had faith in the promises of God that this new age would come and the Gentiles would be saved. And all throughout the world, the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk said that. Isaiah said that. They were anticipating this age in which the Son of God would reign and rule in justice and truth and mercy when sin and sorrow would be no more. As I said a moment ago, Daniel saw the Son of Man coming as on a cloud, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that would be everlasting. These are the the glories that the prophets spoke of. The prophets again and again foretold these types of scenes and events. Now again, though I'm sure they were altogether wonderful to the prophets, exactly how to understand the unfolding of these events was not altogether clear to them. It is likely that the Old Testament prophets saw all these things as occurring sort of all at once with the coming of the Messiah, that He would come The new age would come where sin would be no more, and justice and peace and truth would reign, and the earth would be filled with the glory of the Son of God. Well, that has already begun, but we know this side of the cross. We're in the church age where where the nations are being brought in. The promise is being fulfilled, but it hasn't yet reached its culmination. We wait like they do for the fulfillment of promises. But nonetheless, they told of these glories that were to come. We, of course, know them now with greater clarity, but nonetheless, they prophesied of these things. Now consider fourthly and finally, we've seen the identity of the prophets, the curiosity of the prophets, the content of their prophecy. Fourthly and finally, consider briefly the position of the prophets in redemptive history. Look with me at verse 12 as we consider the position of the prophets in redemptive history. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What's Peter saying? He's not saying that Old Testament saints weren't saved. He's not saying they didn't have faith in the promises of God. He's saying that it was revealed to them that as they prophesied all these things, they somehow at some point became aware these revelations are not going to take place in our lifetime. We're serving a future generation. They they were not serving themselves, Peter says, but they were serving you. You Gentiles scattered all over Asia Minor. You you didn't have the covenants, you didn't have the scriptures, but now through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've been saved and you've been brought near, and you now stand in a more privileged position than King David, or the prophet Daniel, or Moses himself, or Elijah. They were serving you. They were serving this generation. Their revelation was going to come about now through the events of the gospel and through the preaching of the gospel to all those who hear the good news, hear the message, and believe and embrace it. It's a remarkable thing. All of redemptive history, Peter says, was for your benefit. These events took place, the various covenants that were given that drove the redemptive storyline further and further and further. This was designed to serve your salvation the grace that has now been revealed to you. Think of all the history. 
Think of, think of all the things that happened in Israel's experience. Think of all the ways in which the covenants and the nation were jeopardized at different points. It had to be safeguarded and had to be carried through through hundreds and even thousands of years. And Peter's saying, that, that was all for your benefit so that the gospel could come about, so that these things could be revealed, and so that you could be saved. Now, in closing, I want to consider four implications of this passage. Again, we don't look at this passage and think, great, I'll carry that into Tuesday morning and I'll know how to reduce my stress or deal with my anger problem or whatever. But there are some blessed implications that come from this passage and blessed lessons that we can learn to grow in our love of God and service of Him. First of all, we should recognize that revelation is God's prerogative. Revelation is God's prerogative. The Christian religion is a revealed religion. We believe what has been revealed to us. And God has the prerogative to reveal what He wants, when He wants, and to whom He wants. None of us is owed revelation. The fact that God reveals Himself at all is a testament to His grace. The the fact that God is drawing sinners into a relationship with Him and giving to them a knowledge of His Word and His grace is a function of mercy and compassion. The Lord does not owe us revelation. We're not owed the gospel. We're not owed our Bibles. This is a gift of God's grace. And as we can see in the storyline of the Bible, more revelation was given at different times throughout redemptive history. Well, it's not for any of us to say, well, why why is this all that I have? Or why don't you give me more? I'd really like to have revelation on this or on that. No, brother, sister, revelation is God's prerogative. And we should take a cue from these prophets of old. It was revealed to them that the revelation they had was to serve a later generation. And though they had enough to believe that God was good and God was wonderful and that God would redeem them, they didn't get to see the full picture. They didn't get answers to all their questions. Similarly, there may be things we wish to inquire into. We must be content with what God has said in His Word and be satisfied with the revelation that He has given. Second implication from this passage. You can follow and trust God even when you don't have all the answers. You can follow and trust God even when you don't have all the answers. Think again of these prophets. What did they know? Something grand and glorious and wonderful was coming. God has prepared salvation for His people. We have some details. We know it's going to be the son of David. We know he's going to be a prophet greater than Moses. We know that he's going to come from the seed of Abraham. We know that he's going to be uh, some, some leader of the nation. But what's his name going to be? What exactly will his coming be like? How will the timeline all play out? What are going to be the events that bring about this great and glorious salvation? When are the nations going to be brought in? When are they going to be saved? They didn't have answers to all these questions, but they had enough to trust and follow God. And we should take a cue from these prophets. They did not demand from God, you must give me answers to all my questions. 
I'm not going to follow you unless I know exactly how all these things are going to work out. You must unfold to me all the mysteries that I could conjure up in my mind. They didn't do that. They were given what they needed to know in order to have faith, to trust God, to follow Him, to obey Him. We are in a very similar position. Now, we have so much more clarity than the Old Testament prophets, but I imagine for every Christian here, there's things you wish you could know that you don't know. Lord, how are you bringing about my good in all things? You promised that in your word. All things work together for my good. Doesn't feel like it. How is my suffering preparing for me an eternal weight of glory? How is that going to happen? Lord, what, what is your plan for the nations? What is your plan for the church? When is Jesus going to come back? Can you explain to me this obscure doctrine and precisely how it fits within my system of theology? There's all kinds of questions we might want to ask the Lord. But we, like the prophet, should recognize that though we see through a glass dimly, that set of new covenant believers, and it was certainly true of the old covenant believers as well, we do have sufficient grounds to trust and obey and follow the Lord. He has revealed His will to us sufficient for us to follow Him, to believe in Him. And we, we must not, we cannot demand from Him that He give us more. Revelation is His prerogative, and the, if the secret things belong to the Lord, will praise be His name. Maybe I'll learn these things in greater depth when I'm in glory. But what I know now is I can follow and serve the Lord. I can imitate the example of the prophets. Being content with what God has revealed, being satisfied with what He has not, in the meantime, I'm going to trust and serve and follow and honor the Lord. A third implication from these verses. This text helps us to better understand how our Bibles fit together. This text helps us to understand how our Bible fits together. If you want to grow in your ability to interpret the Bible and to understand the books of the Bible, this is like a key text to help us in our reading of God's Word. The Old Testament saints, even the prophets, apparently did not have all the clarity that I have. And that's an important principle in my mind when I come to the Old Testament Scriptures. I'm not reading it precisely like Old Testament saints would have read it. I come with greater clarity. We recognize that the Old Testament in some way is preparing us for and moving us toward the gospel which is revealed in the New Testament. We understand that the Old Testament has in view the salvation that God would bring about through the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we read the Old Testament through the lens of the coming of Christ. And we appreciate all these things, all these farther steps that were taking place to bring about the coming of the Messiah. We recognize that the New Testament, in some sense, illuminates our reading of the Old Testament, that we have the New Testament to help us in understanding the New Testament. Further, this text, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it helps us to connect ourselves to the saints of old. Though we have much more revelation than they have, much greater clarity than they have, we recognize that just like them, we are responding to the revelation we've been given. Just as they had faith in the promises of God in seed form, 
We have faith in the promises of God that have been fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We, we are sons of Abraham by faith. Granted, he had less clarity than I had on the promises. He didn't see all the things that I have been allowed to see. But just like Abraham, we have faith in the promises of God to bring about redemption. You can think of it this way. Um, when I was a kid, music was a really big deal in our home. We used to buy CDs. Kids, a CD is a little disc. Um, I have a few at home I can show you. But um, CDs, kind of like records, old records could get scratched, CDs could get scratched, and so you'd have the CD on in the car, and if you didn't take good care of your CDs, if it was a defective CD, certain tracks would skip, you know? So it'd be like, hey Jude, don't make it, ba 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 you know? So, so I had an album, got this album I really wanted, I won't say the name of the band, but it was an album all the kids wanted, and I got the album, I put the CD in, I listened to track one, man, that was a great track, and track two, track three, track four, this is great, and got to tracks like nine, ten, or eleven, and they skipped, they, they wouldn't play, I got a defective CD, and so you can imagine me then with, with my friends, hey, did you get the new CD, wasn't it awesome, yeah, it's awesome, I just haven't heard all of it yet, I know enough to know it's great, but I haven't heard the last few tracks. Similarly, the Old Testament saints were told wonderful, marvelous, glorious things about what God was going to do to bring about salvation. And they had something of the picture, and no doubt they loved and adored and worshiped and praised God for all the glorious things that were to be revealed. But they were missing some tracks. They didn't have the full reveal. Well, we have it. But like them, we both love and adore and know and treasure the Lord. We are connected to them. We have so much of the same content, and it's our privilege to have a little bit more than them. Of course, in the new heavens and new earth, we'll all have the same exact content. But we are connected to those Old Testament saints. They are our brothers and sisters because they love God as we do. And they are seeking to follow God as we seek to follow God. And their trials of faith are akin to our trials of faith. We just have more of the picture and more clarity. Fourthly and finally, this text reminds us of our privileged position in redemptive history. This text reminds us of our privileged position in redemptive history. When Peter says... The things that have been revealed, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. He's not just talking about first century Christians, he's talking about us by extension. He's talking about all those who live in the new covenant age, all those who have the privilege of existing this side of the cross, all those who have the privilege of having the gospel preached to them. Now think about this. There was a time, Ephesians 2.12 says, that the Gentiles... We're without hope and without God in the world. In, in Ephesus, that church, you had Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, in Ephesians, turns to the Gentiles and says, now you Gentiles know there was a time when you were strangers to the covenant, strangers to the truth. You were without hope and without God in the world. Now that's true on two levels. Like in your life and in your experience as you lived as a rebel against God and as you lived in your sin, dead in your trespasses and sins, you were without hope. You were without God in the world. But there's a larger redemptive historical meaning that Paul's getting across. 
Like, Gentiles weren't saved before the coming of Christ. They were without hope and without God in the world. They didn't have revelation. They didn't know who Yahweh was. They didn't have the covenants. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the good news. They were without hope and without God in the world. Now, think about this. I'm assuming almost everyone here is a Gentile. That is, you're from among the nations, all of us. You weren't born before the coming of Christ. And you weren't born someplace in the world that lacks access to the gospel. Rather, at some point in your life, you heard the gospel, and you believed, and you were saved. God purposed before the foundations of the world that He would bring about redemption for His people, that He would elect men and women from among fallen humanity, and at the proper time, He would bring the good news to them, and they would be saved. The reality is, you could have been born thousands of years prior to the coming of Christ, but you were not. You could have been born in a context today where you had no access to the gospel. You would have been without hope and without God in the world. Peter is telling us here, these events, these prophecies, the history of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, these things were brought about for you. Think about that. What a sense of privilege we should feel how that should enlarge our sense of the grace and mercy of God. Now, I recognize this idea creates all kinds of questions in our mind. Well, why me and not someone else? Is it just for God to hold people accountable who don't have access to the gospel? Those are questions we can work out another time, and there are different texts that speak to those issues. But the fact is this. There are places in the world you could be born where you could have lived and died, never heard the good news about Jesus Christ, and be spending an eternity in hell. But God in mercy has orchestrated events differently so that you, small little me, would come to know the Lord, would come to experience His salvation and His grace. I didn't earn that. Nothing I did qualified myself for that privilege. This has been the work of God, and it ought to be marvelous in our eyes. Just think of all that He's done, all that had to take place in history to bring the gospel to your door. And all He had to do in eternity past to set His love on you and in the process of time to cause you to be born again by the Spirit of God and to give to you the gifts of faith and repentance. Why you? Why me? It's all a token of God's grace. And this is why we say in the Heidelberg Catechism, Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Think of all that God has done in your experience and in history and eternity past to bring the grace of God to you. This is why Peter raises this issue with these Gentile Christians. He wants them to have this sense of privilege. You may be exiles in the world, you may be suffering, you may be outcast, you may be persecuted, but recognize this. God has, for thousands of years and in eternity past, been working for your salvation. And you have become a recipient of the grace of God. And you have this large privilege of knowing the Lord and being destined for an inheritance forever with Him 
in a place called paradise. And what's great about this good news is that it's, it's open to all who would come. Like, like, you don't have to sit on the outside of this and think, man, wouldn't that be awesome? Wish I had that privilege. Wish I had a seat at the table. For anyone who would like a seat at the table, Jesus says, come, come to the feast. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come, all you who are hungry. I have living water. I have food that doesn't perish, but that endures to eternal life. And you too can be a privileged recipient of the grace of God if you would come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that in your mercy and grace you have called us to live in this age in which the gospel is going forward. And not only us, but thousands, millions throughout the world are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for those prophets who you called to serve not themselves, but us. How great is our privilege. We pray that we would esteem this privilege, that we would be lovers of our Bibles. More than that, that we would be lovers of the God of the Bible. We pray that we would celebrate grace that we would have large eyes to what your mercy has wrought in our lives, and then that more would be gathered in, that we would see in our day men and women, boys and girls, sinners saved by your grace and brought to partake of this same privilege that we enjoy as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.